if you have your Bibles, if you'll open up to the book of Romans, chapter 12, where the scripture reading was. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's, there should be one around you somewhere. Um, and if you'll turn to Romans, chapter 12. <clears throat> we're continuing in this chapter, and if, you were, if you've been with us, uh, we're going verse by verse to the book of Romans. And if you were with us last week, um, we started in on this uh, subject of of how to deal with life when persecution comes or when evil has been done to you. Um, There's a lot involved in this and a lot was said last week. I'm not going to rehash all that. Um, But simply to say this, that's where we are. And so this week we're going to continue along that same theme. And and as I've been thinking about this, you know, the, the fundamental issue, I think, um, as we look, as Christians, as we deal with hardships, as we deal with persecution, or as we deal with evil that is done to us, I, I think the fundamental issue is found in verse 2 of chapter 12, where Paul tells us, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, and that which is acceptable, and that which is perfect. You see, the gospel changes us. If we were to go, we, I'm going to, so not if, but uh, if we were to look at the gospel as it's been laid out in the book of Romans, the, the first thing that the gospel does to change us is, is found in Romans chapter 5. Listen to me, just as a recap of Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 6 through 9. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. Listen to this. God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. And so the first thing we see, the first way that the gospel changes us is that the gospel message, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we believe that Jesus takes on our sins, we get His righteousness, we get His right standing before God, and we get adopted into the family of God, and we get saved from the wrath that is to come. But that's not the only way that the gospel changes us. Look again in chapter 6 of, verse Romans, 6 of the book of Romans, verses 5 through 9. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that the body of sin may be done away with, so that we're no longer to be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never again to die. Death no longer is master over Him. And then in verse 11 and 12, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust. 
And the reason that I start here and talk about the ways in which the gospel changes us is because when we are dealing with this topic, we've got to understand that the power to do what this book is telling us to do doesn't come solely from within, within us. Something has to happen. We have to be changed. We no longer have to be being conformed to this world, but we have to be being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Think about it. How does this world, how does this world expect that we should react when evil is done? You can help me with this common phrase. Don't get mad, get even. But we're not like the world, right? We're supposed to be being changed. We're supposed to be being overcoming these desires. In fact, the, the, over and over again, the Word, it tells us things like this. Jesus says, don't be surprised if they hate you because they hated me. The Bible gives us an assurance. In this world, you will have troubles. Don't be surprised when persecution or trials or tribulation comes. And so Paul here is exhorting the church in how to deal with this. And there are two things that are given in this passage that we need to take, take note of. The first thing is this, is that evil does exist. Evil does exist. And just because you are a believer does not mean that you are immune from evil happening to you. Evil can't ultimately prevail over you, but evil will happen to you. So we, we have to know this brother and sister. The other thing that you have to know is that even though you may be a Christian, the desire for revenge is going to be inside of you until you get to heaven. And we see this all around. And I see some of the most sad, heartbreaking tales that I see are people who have been done wrong, that evil has been done to them, and they hang on to this desire for revenge in such a way that it just tortures them for the rest of their life. They, they never get over it. There are real sicknesses and calamities that come upon people who never deal with the desire for revenge. It can manifest itself in physical ways. You know, it's, it's very common. I've got three boys, and I can't tell you the number of times that I've been around a group of boys and some injustice has happened. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to pick on my middle child. Uh, a long time ago, uh, while he was in school, there was a, a young man that stole a hat from somebody else, and he wouldn't give it back. And so Miles and I were talking through this. He was, he was little. And uh, so I, I said, so Miles, what are we going to do about it? And he said, we've already decided. I said, okay, what's going to happen? We're going to get him. And so, thankfully, Miles and I were able to talk through that that's not the proper response, you know, and how to properly handle that situation. But I can't tell you how many times, having three boys, where I've heard that response out of a group of kids. Just the other day in a football game, one of our uh, little kids, uh, who um, actually has several palsy, got kicked in the shin after a play, and one of the other sweet kids on our team comes back to the huddle and he says, Coach, we're going to get him. And I was like, no, we're not going to get him. <laughs> Again, the common theme, <laughs> we're going to get him. Think about it even in this way. Those of you who have played sports 
I, I played a lot of football growing up, and one of the things that our coach would tell us is, um, on the football field in particular, is the ref always catches the second guy, right? What this means is that if somebody does a dirty play or does an evil play, let's say, to you in the middle of a football game, it's always the second guy that's seen on camera throwing the punch or going after. But yet, how many times, knowing this, do we on Saturday and Sundays see players who've been told this hundreds of times not be able to overcome the desire for revenge and cost themselves and their team penalties? I, I just bring this up to say it's, it's deep inside of us. It's, 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 it's in us, and if, and if we're not aware that it's there, then it will come up and it will trip us up, and it will be a detriment, ultimately, to the gospel. Last week, as we were talking about um, persecution and evil being done to you, uh, we discussed these verses. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. This week, we're going to look at two verses. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter. And what we're going to do is we're going to see there's really one main principle. uh, And I'll get to what that main principle is. But I also want you to see that verse 17 um, and verse 21, I think, are the summary of this section. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the principle that we're going to see in verses 19 and 20 today is this. That if you're a Christian, you are free not to take revenge. revenge. If you're a believer, something has happened, something has changed in you, and you are free to not have to take revenge. In fact, not only do you not have to take revenge, but you're also free to love your enemy. And this is rooted in the fact that God is in control and God is merciful and that God is just. And, and ultimate vengeance and ultimate mercy lies in the hands of our God and our Creator. So this affects, this affects how we can treat our enemy. So let's unpack this a little bit. Let's look at verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, one of the things I think is interesting here, and uh, this is just me saying interesting, I don't know, uh, I, I could be too far out on a limb, but I don't think I am. There's a sneaky word that Paul throws in here. You see the sneaky word? <laughs> beloved. Beloved. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I think one of the reasons that this word is snuck in here, as I think Paul's wanting to draw to mind in in the ears and in the hearts and the minds of the believers in whom he is writing this text, is that as he calls them beloved, he wants to call to mind the mercy that's been shown to them. And that they are a loved people. They are a loved people uh, based on nothing but God's love of them. So he, he sneaks in this word, Beloved. But the main point of this verse is that we are not to take revenge, that we are to leave vengeance to the Lord. Now, I stole what I'm getting ready to say from somebody else, but I want to talk just the categories, but I want to talk just for a minute 
about what is vengeance. And over the next, uh, not next week, but the next couple weeks after that, Gary will get into this a little bit more. <coughs> but I just want to take a brief moment and talk about what is vengeance. And to, to understand what vengeance is, we have to start with what is justice. And justice is getting what you deserve. If we want to think in terms of a courtroom, justice is getting what you deserve. So if you, are, um, if you leave here today and you start going 115 miles an hour down Timberlinks Road and one of the Signal Mountain, one of our fine police officers uh, pulls you over, um, justice will be whatever the penalty that has been set for going 115 miles an hour going on Timberlinks Road, right? You're getting what you deserve. Similarly... Similarly, the other side of justice is this. Let's say that it was really Gary going 115 miles an hour. You were going the speed limit. They pull you over. But then as they investigate, they find out, oh, this wasn't you. So you get vindicated. We'll talk about that in a moment. That's the other side of justice. Justice has been served. You have you've been set free. You've gotten what you deserve. You did not do the deed, so you did not do the crime, so you did not pay the time on that. Now, here's where we work our way down. Vindication and vengeance are subcategories of justice. We've already talked about vindication a little bit, and I just want to highlight it again so that we can truly understand what vengeance is. Vindication is to be exonerated from a false accusation. That's vindication. So, let's say that graffiti was put all over Gary's office. I'm not advocating for this, but I'm not saying my office, Gary's office. And that we immediately, the elders immediately blame the youth. Right? And so, we blame the youth, and the youth are like, we didn't do it, we didn't do it, we didn't do it. And let's say as elders we forget that we have cameras and, and when we look at the cameras and when we look at the footage out there, what we really see is the trailblazers going in <laughs> spray painting the office. Vindication would be that the youth are set free. The blame is lifted. They're exonerated by that false, from the false accusation. Now, vengeance, vengeance on the other hand, is the punishment that is inflicted or injuring someone because they have injured you or someone else. That's what vengeance is. It's, it's the punishment side of justice. And so when we look at this, when we look at this verse, it's, it's helpful to understand this because again, what Paul is saying, Paul is not saying don't seek justice. Paul is saying the vengeance or the injuring the other person, or the you giving out the punishment, you leave that to the Lord. And I think this is done in two ways. In two ways. And the first and foremost is in the final judgment. It's in the final judgment. And I think that's the, the clearest, most obvious reading of this text. The quotation here from the Old Testament. And the hard thing here is that man or woman without Christ bears all the wrath from all the wrong that they've ever done 
And they will experience that judgment. This is no light matter. And what Paul is saying here, Paul is saying here, listen, don't take vengeance because God says vengeance is mine. I think our problem sometimes is is two things. So in this statement, you're going to hear two problems with this. But I think our problems at times is that when we're looking at this, when an evil has been done to this and we hear this verse, we get upset because we say, I want vengeance now. Why do I have to wait? There's two problems with this. One is that we don't think about the severity of the punishment that is coming. If, if we understood that, we wouldn't worry about the timing of things. The other thing is that I think it shows a horrific heart that God wants to change. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But what Paul is saying is that one of the ways that you can come out from under the, the, the power of seeking revenge and seeking to, seeking to pay back evil for evil, one of the things that should motivate us in that is knowing that there is a final judgment in which if you stand under the blood of Christ, you don't get what you do deserve because you get Christ's righteousness. And if you don't stand under the blood of Christ, you get what you deserve. Just read a passage for you here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 12. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So notice there's persecution and afflictions going on here. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you in you and Him, according to the grace of our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother and sister, this is no matter in which we should read this verse with a haughty spirit or with an evil spirit in saying, vengeance is the Lord, you will pay one day in the mind frame of wanting that execution done. This should weigh heavy on our hearts. When you're injured by someone, when you're persecuted, when you suffer, that person is storing up the wrath of God over them and it should break our hearts. 
Now, ultimately, this is in the day of the Lord. Real quickly, and Gary was going to unpack this, but, but I do just want to say this, is that God also, this is the perfect justice of the Lord that one day will happen. God also has set up now an imperfect justice system. And just three examples of this that we see in the Bible. Uh, God, it's, it's clear from the text, uh, we'll see next week in chapter 13, that God has set up governing authorities whose jobs is to restrain evil and to exact punishments versus evil. Your home, we're commanded as fathers to be the disciplinarians of our children with the hopes of restraining evil. The church is given a, a process of church discipline with the hopes of restraining evil and governing those among us. But the key here is that still in all these situations, I'm not supposed to take vengeance into my own hands. And the example of this would be this. And I don't know if this has happened in your home. This one hasn't. Well, Flannery has done this probably. And that is this. If somebody does something bad, yeah, this happens in my home all the time. If somebody does something bad and Flannery understands, she's four if you don't know my daughter Flannery, and she's feisty, um, she thinks she's the mom and she will go to exact the punishment on the rest of the kids. She's probably spanked our boys several times. If you walk in on that, what is the proper response as the parent? You are not the parent. Let me handle this. That's what God is saying in this text. You are not God. Let me handle this. Verse 20. Verse 20. So not only are we to leave revenge or vengeance in the hands of God, not only are we to do that, but notice, notice the next part here. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And the first part of this verse, when it talks about feeding your enemy and giving him something to drink, literally, yes, but the idea here is the idea that we get in this text um, in verse 21, overcome evil with good. Or verse 17, respect what is right in the sight of all men. In other words, what it is saying is that not only are we to not seek revenge or evil to our enemy, but on the flip side, we're also supposed to be doing good to them. Now, you say, yeah, Lewis, but look at the second half of that verse. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on their head. And there are three ways uh, to interpret this and the first one is not right and the second two um you'll the third one i think is the most right but the the first one is is awful but the one i see probably most often and that is this that i run across someone who i know has been injured by another person and i see them uh let's say um buying them something they want or taking i've had this happen on several occasions but i don't not here but i still don't want to out these people because this is being recorded. <laughs> and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I've inquired and I've said, oh, goodness, you know, Silas, why are you, you know, uh, Jack uh, broke both of your legs with a baseball bat. Why are, you, why are you buying him his favorite airsoft toy? And he says, with a sheepish grin on his face, shoveling coals. Have we heard that? This is what I call the passive-aggressive interpretation of this. To where the good that's being sought isn't really good. It's really like, oh, I'm going to store up judgment for this person, and so I'm going to spend my whole life doing good things so more judgment is stored up. 
And, and obviously that's not what the text is telling us. The, the, the second option, which is a good one, and I love this interpretation, I just don't think it's ultimately right, and I'll, I'll tell you why. But this interpretation comes from when it talks about burning coals, there's some obscure Egyptian thing about coals on the head, and, 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 and in that context, what it really means is that that is a sign of, of penance, uh, that burning coals is actually a sign of someone putting themselves lowly and in an attitude of repentance. And so I love this interpretation <laughs> because what it means is that by doing good to someone that it puts them into the position where they can receive repentance. The problem, here's the only problem with this interpretation, is that the text and the context don't fit that. Meaning, if that's true in this context, it's the only time burning coals is used where it's not meant as judgment. The rest of the Bible, when we hear the word burning coals or fire on the head, it's meant as judgment. The other thing is this. Verses 19 and 20, there's a parallel going on, and here's the parallel that, that we're supposed to see, is this. In verse 19, it says, Don't take out your own revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You see that? Verse 20 I'm just going to paraphrase here. Do good to your enemy. In doing so, burning coals will be on his head. So the parallel here is judgment. Now, what I want you to understand by saying that, and what I hope that you heard earlier, because it moves me to emotion, is that if we've truly moved, if we've truly not conforming ourselves to this world, if we're truly battling those desires that are in us and that are natural for revenge, if we're truly pushing that out, if we're truly letting the Word of God infiltrate us and to teach us, and if we're truly, if it gets down in there and we're truly to a place to where we're seeking the good of our enemy... Although judgment is over them, what do we desire for that enemy? If we truly desire good, we don't just desire earthly good. The desire that should be there in our hearts and in our souls is repentance. And we see this over and over in the Bible. Saul, persecuting the church an enemy of the church, ravages the church, and he as he's changed, as God saves him, and as he becomes Paul, and he's the writer of this book, over and over again, Paul exhorts us to live in such a way among non-believers that they may see your good works and notice that there's something different and that they may be changed. All throughout history, and if we had times, we could give you many examples of Christians living under persecution and they actually served their persecutors and it left a mark on that persecutor and that persecutor ended up uh, coming to know the Lord as their Savior. And you may say, how is this possible? And uh, I love, I found, I'm going to read two quotes quickly uh, from John Piper. He says, there's two main reasons why Christians should act this way. Talking about not seeking revenge and loving their enemies in this text. One is that it reveals something of the way that God is. God is merciful. He makes the sun rise on evil and on the good. 
He sends rain on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5.45. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquity, Psalm 103.10. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you, Ephesians 4.32. So when Christians live this way, we show something of what God is like. And the second reason is this, that the hearts of Christians, and Christians, please take note of this. This is such an important point. The hearts of Christians are satisfied with God and are not driven by the craving for revenge or self-exaltation or money or earthly security. God has become our all-satisfying treasure. And so we don't treat our adversaries out of our own sense of need and insecurity, but out of our own fullness with the satisfying glory of God. Hebrews 10.34 You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, that is, without retaliation, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. What takes away the compulsion of revenge is our deep confidence that this world is not our home and that God is our utterly sure and all-satisfying reward. Now, in a few moments, we are going to celebrate a baptism. And the symbolism of baptism, right, is that as you go down into the water, the old man dies, and what comes up is the new man, two women, this morning. And the idea is, and the proclamation is, Go forth and walk in the newness of life. And the idea here is that something has happened. Somebody has passed from death to life. And that being passed from death to life, like we read in Romans chapter 6, that there is a new person that can overcome old compulsions. And that's the expectation. That's what happens in the heart and the life of a believer. And I'm going to go a step further and could get in trouble for this, but I'll go a step further. Where we don't see this happening in the life of a believer, where they may use their Christianity as a pulpit to bully people and to crush people, my reading of the Scripture tells me it calls into question that person's faith. Because what we see here in this text is that as that person changes from death to life, there is a new man doing new things who all of a sudden has the new ability to overcome natural desires and to not seek revenge, but to do good. So as we end... As we end, um, I just want to encourage you this morning. um, If you are a believer, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, I just want to encourage you to, to let the work of God happen in your heart and in your soul. And maybe you're even in here this morning and you have uh, been injured, you've been wrong, evil has been done to you. I pray that this morning that even as you watch this
baptism, that you let it be a, a symbol in your own heart of the new man that, that rests within you, and that this may even encourage you this morning to handle that heart stuff in a different way. I'd encourage you to do that. And it may mean that you've got to begin to pray for the one who has done stuff against you and that you, you need to do good to them and seek good for them. And the other group, if, if you're here this morning and maybe you have never placed your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, I just want to pray this morning that in reading some of the verses that we've read or in looking at this topic of not paying revenge and overcoming evil with good, that maybe in the midst of that, that God has done something in your soul and maybe you'd like to talk a little more about that um, this morning since I'm doing the back. Normally Gary and I are both in the back, but Gary will be in the back this morning. And I would just encourage you to uh, grab him in his good arm, the one not in a sling. And he would love to just talk to you. Not to coerce you into anything, but just have a conversation about how it is that you can place your trust in Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that this morning that Your Word, Your Word would change us. And Lord, many of us haven't gone through (coughs) today, this week, evil or persecution has not happened to us. So God, I pray that for those who maybe are struggling with that, that God, that you will, you will help them to wrestle. God, that you will overcome that evil, that revengeful desire in them. And that they would leave here seeking to do good and to seek peace. But God, I pray that it would also, that you would take this word in the life of Christian and that you would embed it deep within us. So that when we encounter these sorts of things, that we've got this in our arsenal. It's there. And so that we know what to do. We know what verses to fly to. We know what attitude that we should have. And God, I do pray if there's any among us who don't know you as their Lord and Savior, that God, your spirit would open the eyes of their heart today and that they would see Jesus as their only hope. And they would respond to a loving God who sent his son to die on a cross so that we might God, that is a miracle that only you can do. And I, God, I pray that you would do that. Because you are merciful and you are good. God, we ask for all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. As we anticipate the